A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you want to be part of the trendy upwardly mobile set you wear the clothes and you drink the wine and you live in the houses and you have the furniture and you have the mosaic floors In this podcast we're travelling to a building that reveals nothing less than the arrival of Christianity into the British Isles built and expanded over nearly four centuries Colossal in size by anyone's standard and luxurious in decoration. Wonderful paintings, mosaics and layers of religion. A cult room dedicated to the worship of hallowed spirits. Native British gods, water nymphs, Zeus and Pegasus. Secret symbols heralding the rise of a new cult stretching right across the Roman Empire. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In last week's podcast, you took us to Sycamore Gap, a beautiful spot on the formidable Hadrian's Wall. Where are we this week? We're in Kent, uh, visiting a villa that was surely grand enough to have housed the governor of Roman Britain and maybe have even put up a visiting emperor or two. It's a grand design, you would say, that was built and continually extended over a period of about 400 years and running through it, tantalising layers of religion. It's a place called Lullingston Roman Villa. When was it discovered? Well, the Roman site was, uh, was first really noticed around 1750. Men were building a, a, a deer park. You know, they were putting posts in the ground to fence off a large area for deer. And at the foot of the post holes they saw a mosaic floor. Wow. So they knew they knew that they had found something of significance. But, you know, 1750, mid-18th century, nothing more was done. Is that because they weren't interested in it at that time? It's a very good question. Uh, it, that probably is what it boils down to. Uh, there, there were no such... There was no such thing as the science of archaeology at that time. There were antiquarians, there had been for a long time. There have always been people who are interested in the relics of the past. 
interested not just in in the history, not just in the written word, uh, but also interested in its physical manifestations in the landscape. There will always have been people like that. Antiquarianism was a was a, a tradition. There were many people who were often churchmen uh, or people who were independently wealthy, almost invariably men who were interested in the things dotted about the landscape that they could tell had been created by another civilization or another people. Uh, but there was no there was no science, so to speak, of archaeology at that point. Uh, and it would appear that all that was done was to remark upon the fact that this had been noticed during the construction of the of the deer park. But then it, it was left until 1939. Uh, there are there are various various bits and pieces of accounts of how Lullingston Villa came to be found. But in 1939, it seems that a a tree had blown over. And when a tree blows over in the bowl of the when the roots lift up a large portion of of soil and turf in the in the bottom of the root bowl was noticed again more of this uh, mosaic flooring but it, it was nineteen thirty nine of course the second world war was just about to break out, and nobody had the time between nineteen thirty nine and nineteen forty five to to be bothering themselves with excavating the suggestion of Roman remains. So it was untouched during the Second World War. But then it was between the 1940s and the 1960s that the place was was excavated and Lullingston Roman Villa was properly, you know, brought back into the into the light of day. Uh, and it's it's an astonishing feature. Even for someone like me you know, I've, I've said again and again that uh, my eye is not always naturally caught by things Roman, where it is for, for many people. But but even I, because of, you know, on the, the scale of Hadrian's Wall and the audacity and the arrogance of Hadrian's Wall, you know, it forces you to pay attention to it. Well, likewise, or, or in a different way, but because of the magnitude of, of, of its significance, Lullingston Roman Villa, is undoubtedly special. Apart from anything else, it's huge. It's still being researched and, and excavated and, and examined to this day. People are still, you know, paying attention to that place. But in that in that first period of excavation, uh, it, it was realised that what they were dealing with was a, a huge villa. It covers a footprint of about 700 square yards, 700 yards on a side. Uh, it's a 20-room home. It was built, the first in its first iteration, it was built in the last couple of decades of uh, the first century AD. So towards the end of the first century of the Roman occupation of Britannia. Uh, and it's, I mean, by any, by any standards, really anywhere in the Roman Empire, it would have been a significant building. This huge footprint, 20 rooms, uh, central heating, all of the sophistication that we would expect of Romans so that it's either been built by Romans, Roman citizens who have immigrated into Britannia or alternatively and it's a it's a kind of a blurred line anyway distinguishing Roman citizens of the kind we're talking about and and Britons who had done well for themselves by uh, taking on Roman ways you know so it may have been the people who owned that the farmers who owned that that territory may have may have seen the wisdom of becoming Roman. You know, uh, taking on all the trappings, 
the dressing like Romans, speaking like Romans, eating and drinking like Romans, entertaining like Romans, and, and living, building for themselves a, a home like Romans. Lullingston Roman Villa is on such a, a scale, really, and it's of such significance that it may even have been lived in by a governor, you, you know, a, a senior administrator who was who was part of the fabric of the Roman Empire, who was there to administer, from a, a governmental point of view, Britannia, or a large part of it. It's so impressive that it may even have seen the tenancy of a, a Roman emperor himself. It is so grand. It was lived in, having been established in the final two decades, probably of, of the first century AD, uh, the family. And let's imagine that it was the same family, you know, passing it down through the generations. Uh, and the family lived in this place and, and modified it and added to it for hundreds of years. OK, so there, it's just this uh, significant presence in that part of the southeast of England, which which is obviously, it's that part of, of Britannia which was closest to mainland Europe. And so it was always going to be accessible with people arriving from the continent, you know, other Romans coming in. It's, it's in the ideal, it's in the ideal place to be, to be attractive to those who are coming and going into Britannia. What's really put Lullingston Villa on the map is that it is, uh, as far as archaeologists have been able to determine so far, it shows the earliest Christian worship in the whole of the British Isles. Now, there may be, you know, in the future, other discoveries may come to light, uh, but at the moment, the family of... Lullingston Roman Villa were the first people that were found so far who were practising a form of Christianity. And for anyone living in Western Europe, for anyone living in the British Isles, uh, there has been no more significant defining and shaping force than the Christian religion. Everything about it, you know, obviously the faith for the for the for the believers, for the devout, for those who believe in Christianity and and everything that Christianity means, uh, but but also uh, the civilization and the society and the way of life that Christianity has afforded. Whether whether you and I, whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or not, you and I live in a part of the world that has been shaped more than by anything else by the Christian tradition or the Judeo-Christian tradition. There's just no getting away from that. Christianity has been the defining force for the longest time. Uh, and, and to find in Lullingston Villa its first fingerprints, if you like, automatically makes it significant. Now, what, what's important, though, is that because of how long people lived in Lullingston Villa, we see Christianity arrive almost by a, a process of it well, it's not quite osmosis, is it? But it's spreading. It, it, Christianity spread out of the Middle East, obviously, and then and spread into Europe, and and then to eventually you eventually see it creeping into into Britannia, into the British Isles, and its its earliest footprints or fingerprints are at Lullingston Villa, because in the earlier uh, occupancy of uh, of Lullingston Villa, the 
people, the the Romans or the or the Britons who were living in a Roman way, uh, were following pagan traditions. Okay, so in a in a deep cellar room, like in a basement level of Lullingston Villa, there was a well, a, a, a supply of fresh water that would have been the, the principal source of fresh water for the house, maybe. I mean, there's a river nearby, you know, outside, but this would have been inside the house. Uh, and there's a, a painting uh, on the wall of water nymphs. Okay, so kind of um, spirits of the water. And, and the idea would have been that by going through certain rituals and performing certain rites, the people living in, in Lullingston would have uh, ensured the continued supply of fresh water by respecting and worshipping or acknowledging the, the importance of these water nymphs. And so that's pagan. So that shows that the first people, the people who built, who laid the foundations and, and were the first occupants or the first few generations of occupants of Lullingston Villa were were following the pagan tradition, which which keeps it in line with the Roman tradition, because the the Roman tradition before Christianity was was pagan. So the residents there lived in that way, and amongst other things, you know, you know, paid attention to water spirits. And then after a while, that painting was painted over. Okay, it was just it was just obliterated. It was just like like whitewash over it, so it was put out of sight. And instead. Uh, there were two busts of uh, male figures. And these may have been ancestors, uh, maybe the founding fathers of the family, or or men of significance in the family's uh, ancestral line. And it would appear that in that same space where previously the water nymphs had been worshipped, by this point the residents of Lullingston Villa were worshipping ancestors. And and this is also this is also in line with the Roman way of things. It's more of that idea that we've talked about in relation to places like Bath, uh, about the Romans being um, quite pragmatic about all things, and especially around things like religion. You know, as long as you, as long as people paid their gold in tax to the empire, and acknowledged that the emperor was was the top dog, by and large, people were were free to go about their business. And the, and the Romans were quite sensibly, maturely, really quite mature thinking. They let people get on with that because they were running a business first and foremost. And as long as the money kept coming through, people behaved themselves, acknowledged the emperor, they would let people go about. So there was quite a lot of variation, you know, around the way in which people approached things like cult practices and and religion and faith and whether they worshipped spirits or water nymphs or whatever. You know, there was a degree of latitude around that. So in the early centuries of the Roman occupation, the pagan tradition was firmly embedded in the British Isles. When did that change? In 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, ended what had been the practice of persecuting Christianity. Uh, not least because central to the Christian faith was that there was only one God and that he was, up, and that he was above everything, including, including above the Roman Emperor. And because the Romans would not tolerate the idea of there being anybody above the Emperor, that was a big part of why Christianity, as far as they were concerned, had to be 
you know, persecuted and and crushed. But in th- 313 AD, Emperor Constantine ended the persecution of Christianity. Now, Emperor Constantine was the one we've mentioned him before. He's the one who, uh, when he was in York, his father died, and he set out from York to go all the way back to Rome to establish himself as emperor because he wasn't the only person with a claim on the on the imperial throne at that time. Uh, so he was, you know, he was already one of those people who had been affected by and whose destiny was shaped, if you like, by having been in in the British Isles. You know, he was another of a, he was a, a kind of a, an export back into the European continent of, of a Roman who had been affected by his time here. So it's him that puts an end to the persecution of of, uh, of Christians and Christianity. And in the years after that, maybe within a couple of decades of Constantine saying it's okay to be a Christian, the then tenants of Lullingston Villa spent a great deal of money bringing in specialist flooring, <laughs> a specialist flooring company, <laughs> if you like, to put down a couple of mosaic floors in, in two big rooms in the house. And it's it's these floors that give these clues to the fact that these people are now... Christianity is in their life. Because within the, the iconography, within the design of those mosaic floors, are hints and touches that can be interpreted as Christian. On the face of it, the images in the mosaic floors take their inspiration from like classical Greece and and from Roman mythology. You know, what you've got in one of them is the god Zeus in the form of a bull, a white bull, uh, carrying off the beautiful maiden Europa. Now this is this is part of the whole, you know, it's a, this is a big moment in in you know in the story of Zeus and and in in that mythology, uh, and then there's another another of the mosaic floors shows uh, Bellerophon, who's a character a bit like he's 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 older he's he's from the older tradition than say uh, Hercules, but but a similar kind of hyper alpha heroic character. Okay, he was a slayer of demons. He was up there with the likes of Perseus, uh, and one of the things that Bellerophon is most famous for, is slaying the Chimera. And the Chimera was a, a kind of a hybrid beast with the head of a lion and the body of a goat and a serpent's tail. And it breathed fire and it was a, a nightmarish apparition. Uh, but Bellerophon, in the image on the mosaic floor, is riding Pegasus, the winged horse, and tackling the Chimera. So it's another image that on the face of it is it's straight out of the of the playbook of Greek and Roman mythology and, and, and their pantheon of gods. But there are lines of uh, Latin worked into the into the mosaic flooring. And depending on how you read them and decipher the code, if you like, on, on the one hand, some people say that they have spotted by counting repeating letters and, and letters equally spaced through the through the Latin, they think they have identified the name of the owner of the house. But much more interestingly is that if you start on the second line of the of, of the Latin across this mosaic floor and then and count every eighth letter, you get 
the letters of the word Jesus. It's all about smoke and mirrors, but it's possible to see, you know, Jesus spelt out in this mosaic floor. But given that Christians weren't being persecuted anymore, why would the villa's inhabitants have hidden the meaning? It's only maybe 10, 20 years since Christianity has, has ceased to be persecuted and they might have been a bit nervous. So the, the, so the family might have been hedging their bets, okay? Let's, let's, it's, when most of our guests come in, they'll just see things like Bellerophon and Europa and Zeus. Um, but if we trust the people coming in, we might let them see that we're also dabbling in a bit of Christianity as well. But with, with Christianity having been something that was persecuted for so long, even though it had been okayed by one emperor, that didn't mean that another emperor coming in you know, might not start to persecute Christians again. So they'd be being a bit, not, not going all out and saying that they were Christians. But elsewhere uh, in Lullingston Villa, there's a room towards the northwest of the, of the villa complex and it has been identified or it's been interpreted as what's called a house church. And on the floor of this uh, room were found fragments, thousands of fragments of what had been paintings on plaster mounted on the walls. But with the, you know, with the dereliction and the collapse and the, and the destruction of the villa, these, these had been smashed to pieces. But they were painstakingly reconstructed and they're now on display in the British Museum in London. And so these would have been two paintings on the walls of this, what they call um, a house church. One of them depicts six figures in various attitudes of prayer, you know, holding their arms in, out to the sides with their fingers positioned in certain ways, which are unmistakably the posture of early Christians, you know, before Christians started bringing their hands together in what we think of as the attitude of prayer. Christians took up other positions while they were standing in prayer. And so there are six, there are depictions of six figures in different attitudes of early Christian prayer. And then the other image, the other painting on the wall, is what's called a Cairo, which is, uh, it's two letters of the Greek alphabet brought together in a kind of monogram. And what it looks like to you and me is a capital X, and then sitting on top of and part of the X is what looks to us like the letter P. But, it, but it's two Greek letters, Chi and Rho, CH and R, which are the first letters of Christ. And in the early years of, of Christianity within the Roman Empire, uh, the Chi Rho was a kind of a secret sign that Christians would have about themselves or that, or that they would use to identify one another. It was a secret, a secret mark, the Cairo. So in this room, in this house church in Lillingston Villa, you've got the Cairo, which is a symbol of Christ, and these six figures in an attitude of prayer. Uh, and it, really, there's no other way reasonably to interpret it than to say that this was a place where the residents, the tenants of this house, were going into this room and and practicing their Christian faith. The only house church of this kind that's contemporary is in Syria, in the Middle East, in the, in the Holy Land. You know, before you get to another uh, house church that's of the same sort and that's as early. 
So the Lullingston Roman villa, with its house church in this early part of the 4th century, is a very, very significant find. It feels like a great family saga. Do we know much about the people who lived here? Got a wealthy family. They're either Roman or they have taken on the trappings of Roman life. Earlier on, their ancestors were pagan. But then very, very early, after Christianity was made an acceptable faith within the Roman Empire, these people, this family, began Christian worship in this house in Kent. And by any stretch of, of the imagination, it is an enormously significant place to go and visit. You can see the mosaic floors, you can see the layout, you can get this sense of scale. I mean, it's a huge house. It feels like a big house but you're by modern standards. And, and really most fascinating of all is this idea that, 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 that so early in the story of Christianity, there was a Roman family in Kent and they were, you know, they were there. They possibly, had, they possibly kept the pagan thing going just, just to be safe. But, but in another part of the house, a private part of the house, they were embracing the Christianity that, that ever after, I mean, from that time on, was to have such significance in shaping, you know, what we consider to be the, the society and the civilization of Western Europe. We're so used to Christianity being powerful, confident and rich. It's fascinating to see this creeping advance into the country. That's right. I mean, you, know, you, take a, you take a faith like Christianity for granted. It's 2,000 years old. Uh, so obviously it's under, it's under pressure in, in parts of the world now. You know, it's under, under assault and under attack in certain parts of the world. But it has been a monolithic, fixed presence in a large part of the world for such a long time. And it, but it's so, it's so intriguing and touching to, to go back, to rewind to the point where it was still an eccentricity, really. You know, it was a newfangled thing. Yeah. It was a fledgling cult. For people in the, in the 300s and the 400s AD in, in the British Isles, they knew that, you know, Christianity had been, you know, punishable by death. It, it was a persecuted, eccentric cult. You know, and, and had been for all of that time. And it had just, it was just crossing the line into acceptability when the people living in Lullingston Villa decided to, to take it on. I mean, they might have been being political to, to some extent. I mean, they may have seen someone in the house or a generation within the house may have properly and accurately assessed what way the wind was blowing. Constantine, Emperor Constantine, stopped the persecution of Christians and converted to Christianity. But, but the extent to which he was in his heart a Christian is debated by archaeologists and historians to this, to this day. You know, he was, a, he was a political animal as well. And likewise, the, the people in Lullingston who were operating within a few decades of his decision to stop the persecution of Christianity may have been being political also. Hence the fact that the, the pagan, those pagan traditions are still there in the house 
and it, it may have been it may have been the case that it might have been a quite a big family, quite quite an extended family within Lullingston. And maybe the younger generation or a few of them had decided that Christianity was the way to go. And maybe their parents and grandparents decided no. You know, we'll keep the we'll keep to the old ways. So that both traditions, maybe for quite a long time, were running parallel within Lullingston until eventually, you know, time, well, time would tell, the Roman occupation of, of uh, the British Isles of Britannia would come to an end anyway in the 5th century. But by that time, the roots, uh, the roots of Christianity were, were embedded, not just in Kent, but, el- but elsewhere within, within Britain. And in no significant way, really, would they ever would it ever be undone? You know, Christianity would would go through highs and lows, but it, it was never it was never removed again. You know, so that that generation that 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 saw the that saw the way the wind was blowing, and adopted Christianity, they were they were <laughs> they were probably they were probably right. The term villa describes. A rich country house mm. in the sun, usually. <laughs> yeah. How different was this villa to the native houses that were around in Britain at the time? For one thing, you're talking about a house with straight lines. You know, at other periods in our part of the world, you know, houses were circular. Um, but these were, they weren't the only, but they were, they were part of a, of a tradition of building in a different way. And the Romans brought with them their their architectural tastes and styles and well maybe yeah they imposed they imposed in the same way that in in centuries to come uh, with the Norman conquest after the Battle of Hastings you know the the the, the Normans started implanting their their Mott and Bailey castles all over the place as a visual statement that they had arrived and places like the you know the Tower of London are built eventually as a as an absolute statement of possession and presence and you know we are the top dogs and the and the architectural style of the Roman villa uh, was was part of that you know again I mean I've used the analogy before of the sort of IKEA model but if, if you want to be part of the trendy upward coming upwardly mobile set you you wear the clothes and you drink the wine and you live in the houses and you have the furniture and you have the mosaic floors because you want everyone to know that you are part of that emergent middle class who are who are running the country. Amazing that much of what the Romans introduced into British houses, like central heating and mosaics, are still with us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it is, I suppose, though, that these mosaics are absolutely transmitting something. They're, they're absolutely they're, they're a statement of who you are, what you believe and you're aligning yourself with the classical world. The Romans were the, were the inheritors of classical Greece or everyone inherited classical Greece but the Romans kind of took it to heart more than anybody else and for us, uh, you know, having a, a, you know, a mosaic appearance about a floor is it's just a style, just a fashion statement. But that the iconography that's in play, for example, in the Lullingston Villa, it's saying something. People would have been conversant with the, the, the language. They would have been familiar with the story that was being told. 
you know, the story of, of Zeus, uh, well, she, she's either seduced by Zeus or she's raped by Zeus. The story had been that, that Europa was very, very beautiful and she was she was looking after, among with other maidens, she was looking after a, a herd of cattle and Zeus, the god, saw her, you know, thought she was amazing and disguised himself in the form of a white bull so that he could mingle with the herd. And then, you know, according to the legend, eventually she became... Europa became so enamoured of the bull that she jumped on its back and then Zeus galloped off, ran off with Europa. Europa is uh, is, the, is the origin of Europe, the name that's, that's applied to our continent or to the European continent. It comes from Europa. That story of Zeus would have been known to every Roman. It, it, it was part of the, the mythology that they had taken on for the, for themselves and likewise the idea of, of Bellerophon who he, he angered the gods uh, by jumping onto the back of Pegasus uh, and, and attempting to fly up to uh, Olympus to be with them which was a, a kind of blasphemy really uh, but but he, you know so, but he's depicted there on Pegasus and he was also famous for having slain the the chimera, and so the, these were things that just were like badges of identity, you know. So, as, so for people seeing the Roman villa and then walking inside and being confronted with this, uh, with these images on the floor, it's, it's told everyone who, who these people were. But but there's this subtle sleight of hand going on, you know. And you have something on the back of on the back of a car on the on the registration plate, you know. You see the fish symbol. Yeah. And that's another ancient symbol of, of, uh, of early Christianity. And so people still use that symbol today. You know, dev some devout Christians will still use that as a, as a badge to declare who they are and will stick it on the, you know, on the bumper of their cars. Uh, and so, so similarly, you know, the way in which the family had commissioned the mosaic to be laid, they had seemingly insisted that this recurring pattern be put in the, in the Latin uh, uh, phrasing within the mosaic so that you could count every eighth letter and get Jesus from it. And then again, you know, the Cairo, if you were, if you were close enough to the family that they would take you into their, their um, house church and let you worship there with them, then you would, you'd, be, you'd be seeing the Cairo symbol, which is Christ, which is the name Christ, the, the anointed one. And then you're seeing these six figures in instantly, if you're Christian, instantly recognizable attitudes of prayer because Christians standing and praying together would have, would have adopted these positions. So, you know, they're very out there declarations of identity and faith. But regardless of whether you're religious or not, the villa tells a moving story about struggle, doesn't it? Oh, it's just, I find that I'm, I'm touched by it. Yes, this house was sacred and had, and had a holy place within it for those people in that very earliest point when Christianity was just uh, was just arriving like wind-blown seeds in the British Isles. It was just just settling down and beginning to take root. But for those people, those uh, those early Roman Christians, uh, you know, they were. It was something uh, that was very vulnerable. It could easily have been washed away, blown out, extinguished, but it wasn't. 
you know, after arriving there in the early part of the fourth century, well, it's still, it's still here. It's still here after all those centuries. A small, isolated island on the edge of the world. A place where Scottish, Irish and Norwegian kings are buried. Ancient and sacred. A place that makes special everything that comes there. A place where early Christian evangelists kept their conviction and faith alive. A magical place where the landscape, the light and even the air come together to enthrall. It's my favourite place. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.